John chapter 8 uh, is, is where we're going to go. So uh, several years ago, I had a, a really good friend of mine, one of my very best friends, almost like family uh, to me. Uh, one of those friends that, I mean, is, is just uh, thicker than blood in so many ways. And he hit, uh, he hit this moment of just kind of spiritual rock bottom in his life. And many of us have been there, you know what I'm talking about, firsthand experience, you've, you've felt those moments where all of the wheels kind of metaphorically come off your life. Everything's exposed for what it is, and uh, the, the, the lie is exposed. And I had this moment happen with one of my really closest friends. He had been in this season where he had been bearing uh, sin and addiction and different behaviors. He was keeping this friend group away from this other friend group and this behavior away from this other group. And for a really significant amount of time, he was quite adept at managing all of these hidden areas of his life. You know, some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. And he was hiding everything and kind of, kind of pushing it down. And then there was the moment that we all experience at some point or another where all of it comes to the surface, where, where, where he kind of crashed and all of the stuff that he had been involved in for so long just came up to the surface of his life. And I remember the night that it happened, I just happened to be one of his first friends that was kind of on the scene. And I remember sitting there and he was just like weeping and he was telling me about all the stuff that he had been involved in. Quite honestly, I had no, I had no clue any of it was going on. We'd been friends for decades, and I thought, I had no clue you're wrestling with this stuff. And all this stuff was just kind of unfolding his life, and he's sharing, and as, he, as he's pouring his heart out to me, I'm literally just kind of praying in the moment. Maybe some of you have been there. I'm like, God, would you please just use me? Like, would you use me? Would you give me the right words? Would you give me the right posture? Would you give me the right action? Lord, would you let me do something in such a way that he would know that he's loved by you and that he's loved by me and that he, he has a place in God's family? And have you ever been there before? Like, where you're just like pleading, like, God, use me. And the truth is, I had no clue what I needed to say. And I had no clue what I needed to do, but I knew that I wanted God to use my life in that moment for my buddy to come back into the family of God. And I blew it. Absolutely blew it. It's one of those moments where I said things that I wish I could take back. And I didn't say things that I wish I would have said. That I did things that I wish I wouldn't have done. And I didn't do things that I wish so badly I would have done. And in that moment, I validated the hunch that my friend always had about people like me. And that is that people like me can't be trusted when it all hits the bottom. And he's used that moment over the last several years as an excuse to keep running from the Lord and to keep running from friends. And I've just, I've been like, God, would you please just give me a do-over? Have you ever been in one of those moments before where, where you're like sitting face to face with somebody you love, like you love them so badly it hurts? And you know that they're at this critical moment in their journey and that God has placed you there and that you have an opportunity to like really point them to the grace and the truth and the beauty of Jesus. And have you ever blown a moment like that? Oh man, it's the worst. It's the worst. And if you're anything like me, sometimes my, my own failure makes me gun shy or trigger shy when I find myself in another setting where, where the wheels are coming off in a person's life. And I go, man, I remember what happened last time I spoke up. Or I remember what happened last time I didn't speak up. And if we're not careful, we end up being just kind of spiritual bystanders in the spiritual car crashes of people's lives. 
But man, we were made for so much more than that. I, I believe that the Lord has, has put us here, that he's put you here, that he's put our church family here for those, for those moments in people's lives all around us where the wheels begin to come off. And the, the truth is so many times we don't know what to say and we don't know how to say it. We don't know if they need more grace or if they need more truth. They don't, we don't know if they need a little bit of kind of hard love or if they just need a soft presence. But the truth is, what they need is what it is that God is doing in you for the sake of those that are around you. I go, so what does it look like? And this is what I want us to explore this morning. Despite all of our failures, like what does it look like to be the kind of people whose very presence becomes great news to people that are in a bad moment? What does it look like for your life to become great news for a person when they find themselves in a bad moment? And I believe if we wanna be this kind of family, we have to learn how to walk in the beauty and the reality of the grace of God and the truth of who he is. You know, one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus comes out of John chapter one, verse 14, where it says that Jesus in himself was the fullness of grace and truth, that he was overflowing with God's kindness and that he was the perfect picture of God's truth. You realize that in Jesus, there was no competition between grace or truth. Jesus wasn't going, hey, should I be nice here or should I be truthful here? Should I be loving here or should I be truthful here? Jesus knew that there was, those were not competing values in the kingdom of God. You know, our culture tries to convince us that you have to choose one or the other. You either have to be loving or truthful, gracious or truthful, but Jesus is gonna say, no, listen, in order to be loving, you have to be both gracious and truthful. That grace without truth is not love and truth without grace is not love. That if we want to be like Christ, if we want to become great news to our friends when they find themselves in broken moments, we have to be people who are walking in the grace and truth of Jesus. But man, have you ever noticed just how tricky that is to do? And I, I love this story that unfolds in John chapter eight that I want to look at for just a few minutes this, moment, uh, this morning. It's one of my favorite moments in the life of Jesus where he finds himself face to face with somebody who's come to their spiritual rock bottom. And I, I just want you to recognize, I just want you to notice the way that he walks with such a high level of grace and such a high level of truth. And he does it for the purpose of redeeming life. Let's start in verse two. I'll give you some context as we get into the passage to help you understand it. John chapter eight, verse two, it says at dawn in the morning, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And so I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus, he's there in Jerusalem. He showed up, it's there in the morning. He's at the temple courts. He's teaching uh, people the word of God. And if you don't know the backstory to this, it just sounds like, okay, cool. This is what Jesus is always doing. He's always somewhere, always teaching someone. And it just seems like a normal moment. But if you don't understand the context, you miss the, the richness of what's unfolding here. This season in Jesus' life was one of the most difficult seasons of his entire earthly ministry. You go back just a few chapters, and just before this, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered because of his friendship and his allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is devastated by that moment and wants to get away, and as he's trying to get away to just rest with the Lord and to rest with his disciples, it says that the crowds show up and they start begging Jesus to feed them. I don't know if you've ever had someone you care about die, but can you imagine in that moment of deep grief, the multitude showing up saying, hey, we need something from you. And this is what Jesus was walking in. 
It says the multitude show up and Jesus begins to feed them. And as he's teaching them, it says that the people are confronted with just how challenging his message is. And so in the midst of his grief, as he is feeding these people, the crowds begin to abandon Jesus because his teaching is too tough. And so he's experiencing grief and loss and people that are needing something from him. And then in the midst of it, he begins to experience rejection. Talk about a bad week at the office. In the midst of this, it says that the Jewish leaders, they began to plot, to plot an assassination attempt against Jesus' life. So no longer can he go amongst public places with the freedom that he used to have because the people are out to kill him. John chapter seven, right before the story that we get to, Jesus, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his rejection, in the midst of all of the things that he's feeling, amidst the assassination attempts on his own life, he shows up at this huge festival and he teaches them. And his teaching is this teaching that's just marked with the grace and the truth of who God is. He says, the Holy Spirit is coming. It's going to be poured out on your lives. And it says that the religious leaders were just up in arms over Jesus' teaching. The people were absolutely divided. They didn't know what to do with Jesus' teaching. And so you get to John chapter 8, verse 1. And Jesus goes away. He spends the night praying at the Mount of Olives. And then the next morning, he walks right back into the crowd, right back into the chaos, right back into the consumers, into the place of grief, into the place where people were looking to assassinate him and he sits down to do what he always does and it's to care for people like you and I. I go, man, if you want to see the heart of Jesus, just go back and read John chapter five to John chapter eight because you see the way he serves the people in the midst of this unthinkable moment. So he sits down and he's teaching them and there's all of this tension in the air because of all these things that have been going on. Keep going, verse three. It says, then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, in the midst of this teaching moment, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, listen to this, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now sometimes we read this and it's just so safe, it's so black and white, it's just words on a story from a long time ago, but I, I want you to imagine the scene as it unfolds. Just imagine what it would have been like to have been this woman for a minute. Here she is in this, this moment of deep shame. Maybe the shame hasn't caught up with her yet, but it's about to. This woman is betraying her husband, she's betraying her marital vows. She's having sex with someone that she's not married to. And I'm not trying to be crass for a moment, but I just want you to think about the vulnerability that happens in the moment of sex. I mean, here she is, not just in a vulnerable moment, but in a vulnerable moment that is buried under the weight of shame and sin. And as she is in that moment, the door is kicked open and somebody busts in on her. I don't want to get too graphic here, but I just want you to put yourself in her shoes and just to imagine the weight of being caught in a moment like this. But it's not just that she's caught. It's that she's caught by her pastors, by the priest. I mean, can you imagine me busting into your house in a moment like that? I mean, just put yourself there. And I'm like, boom, welcome to ethos. And you're like, ah, Think about it. It's horrible. The worship band comes in right behind me. I mean, it's a terrible moment. 
They drag this woman out into this scene where Jesus is teaching. I mean, we've been in this room many times where people have interrupted a service, and it's been awkward. But can you imagine this service being interrupted by a naked woman and a group of shouting pastors from another church? Hey, Dave, here she is. She's a part of your church. We just caught her in the act of adultery. What do you say about this? And everyone's looking at her. What a terrible moment. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been in the crowd? You're just sitting there going, what is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to say? Can you imagine being one of the religious leaders? You just go around the circle. Can you imagine being Jesus? I think about how I feel like when one of my kids catches one of my other kids in something they shouldn't be doing. When one of my other sons comes and says, hey, I caught so-and-so doing this, it never makes me happy when they're delighting in my other child's brokenness. Can you just imagine how heartsick Jesus had to feel in this moment for everyone and for everything? And this is the scene that's unfolding. He's teaching in his moment of grief and compassion and heartbreak. In the middle of it, the very ones that were planning the assassination on his life bring in one of his daughters, one of the people he had created caught in this horrific moment and says, what do you have to say about this? Keep going in the story. Verse five. It said, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone a woman like this. You notice they don't even use her name. The law commands us to stone a woman like this. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. So we don't have to guess at the motives of the leaders here. It's not like they were just strolling through Jerusalem and they heard what sounded like a Cinemax movie going on in a house and they strolled in and found someone in the moment of adultery. No, this was a, a pre-plotted moment. They knew where she was going. They knew what she was doing and they broke in for such a time as this to trap Jesus. And I want you to notice the type of trap that they try to put Jesus in because this is the type of trap that our culture will continuously try to put you in. And they say, hey, Jesus, in this moment, when everything hits the fan, will you choose to honor the person or will you choose to honor God's word? Will you choose to honor her dignity or will you choose to honor what the scriptures have said to be right and true? You see what's going on here? They said, hey, this is what the law says. This is what the word of God says. But what do you say? Like, you see her. How do you feel? And there's this moment where they try to put him in it. But I love it because Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. Jesus knows that in the kingdom of God, there is no competition between grace and truth. Jesus knows that it's fundamentally impossible to honor God's word and simultaneously dishonor a person. That when we honor God's word, we are honoring people in ways that they may not even understand, but that those two things go hand in hand. But even the religious leaders of the day didn't understand it. I see this all the time in our cultural Christianity. Even Christians in our culture don't understand it. We say things like this. I, I just don't know if God, I just don't know that God would be against that because they're so happy. I just don't know if God would be against that. I just don't know if God, and, and we have this temptation or this tendency in our culture to say, do we choose truth or do we choose grace? Do we choose to honor the person or to honor the word? And Jesus says, when you honor the word, you honor the person. It's not a competition between the two. And he says, I'm not gonna fall for the cultural trap. Do you realize this is the trap? Just shake your heads if you see this. Do you feel this, church? You can talk back to me. I, I, I don't wanna preach about something you don't care about. Does this make sense? 
You felt this before, right? You felt it. Do I honor God or do I honor people? Can those two things happen together? Jesus bends down, he keeps riding in the sand. Verse seven, when they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard Jesus began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. I love that because the ones that had lived longer, they knew, they're like, man, I have been in some messes before right? They're like, I've been there before. Until only Jesus was left with the woman that was standing there. I want you to think about this profound moment. Notice what Jesus does and what Jesus does not do. Jesus never one time questions. He never one time questions their perception of her sinfulness. He doesn't look to the leaders and go, guys, Do you really think she's in sin right now? He never questions their perception of her sinfulness. What Jesus questions is their desire for her well-being. He never questions whether or not they've held on to the truth. He questions why it is that they've brought this moment of truth to him. Jesus says, why why have you brought her to me in in this moment? And he begins to challenge them on that and they all begin to leave. They recognize what it is that they've done. The story ends like this, verse 10. Then Jesus straightened up and he asked the woman, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Just imagine this scene from her perspective. In her most shameful moment, standing in front of all of the people of her town, this is the moment she's looking eye to eye with God. Do you ever think about that moment? Like, man, I hope, I hope God, I hope I die like reading the Bible, you know? <laughs> like, I hope I die reading the Bible, praying in tongues, serving the poor, giving all my money away. Like, I hope that's the moment the meteor crashes on my house. Because we all have this dream of what we want it to look like, right, when we stand face to face with God. Do you realize you don't get to choose that moment? She didn't choose this moment. And she's there. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, he was preaching at his church and it came to his attention that a guy in their church the night before had died in his sleep, 33 years old, died in his sleep. And the thing that made it so challenging was he had died in the sleep, in his sleep, in another woman's bed, 33 years old. His wife thought he was on a business trip. And I remember my friend getting up saying, hey, so-and-so died last night. Can you imagine This is the moment where God said, I'm ready to meet you face to face. Scary stuff. She finds herself face to face with God. And I want you to look at how Jesus responds. He says, says, where are all the people? Is there no one left to condemn you? I don't know if you underline your Bibles, but you should underline that word condemn because you know what it means? It means to make a final judgment on someone's life. Jesus didn't look at her and say, hey, is there no one here to to make a judgment about you? It's two different words in the original language. They had already made a judgment about her and the judgment was that she was not living according to God's word. But there's a different level of judgment and it's the type of judgment where you realize you've got no more get out of jail free cards. You've got no more tomorrows to wake up to. It's It's the period at the end of a sentence, at the end of a paragraph, at the end of a book. Condemnation is like the final sentence on a person's life. He says, hey, is there nobody here to put the period on the end of your life? And look what Jesus says to her. He says, then I won't do that either. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is one of the most profound moments, I think, in all the gospels. 
where Jesus sees a woman and she is in her place of absolute destitute and brokenness. And just like, just like the master that he is, like the baller that he is, I mean, he's so amazing. He speaks to her with grace and truth in such a way that sets her free. I want you to see what Jesus does here, because it's so important if we want to model it. Did you notice that Jesus has the ability to see her sin? He can see her sin. He, he looks at it, and he doesn't say, hey, they're all gone. Glad those guys are out of here. How is that affair treating you? Does he make you happier than your husband? He doesn't coddle her in her sin. Jesus never allows us to get comfortable in the things that will rip us out of the grace of God. Jesus will never help you make your bed in hell. So he doesn't look at her and go, oh man, I know it just probably felt so good and you felt lonely and he affirmed you and just go for it. There's grace for this. It's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He says, leave your life of, come on church, leave your life of sin. Have you recognized that there is nothing less popular in a culture like ours than calling sin a sin? If you want to come across like a small-minded idiot bigot, just tell anyone that they're sinning. Because we, we live in a culture that's a post-truth culture. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Their truth is their truth. Who cares what truth is? We don't care if it's true. We'll write a story. We'll send it out. Jesus didn't come saying, I point to truth. He said, I am the truth. And he says, and the truth will set you what? Free. Jesus knew that he was getting ready to say the thing that she probably didn't want to hear, but it was the thing that she needed to hear because it's the only thing that would change her. But in order to say it, he had to see it. He could see her sin. It's the truth. But he didn't just see her sin. What did he also see? He could see beyond her sin. And that's what we love about Jesus. He says, where are all of your condemners? He says, well, here's, here's the deal, sister. I'm not willing for this to be your last moment. Jesus says, I'm not willing for this to be the defining mark of your life. And with the grace of Jesus, he says, I want you to leave, but you have to leave the life of sin. He says, there's a new tomorrow, there's a new future, there's a new place for you, but you only step into the new place of grace when you embrace the truth that you have to leave the place you are. And we live in a culture that says, come on, be gracious, be gracious, be gracious, because we have said, we've come to this place, this cultural moment, where in order to love someone means you have to agree with everything they do. Can we just all acknowledge that that is the dumbest thing we've ever heard? Those of you that are parents, you know this. Like, I love my kids. They do some stupid stuff. And if my love was based upon me having to affirm and agree with everything they do, I couldn't love them. It'd be impossible. Love, love is not dependent upon affirmation. Love is not dependent upon acceptance of brokenness and sin. Love says, I'll meet you there with grace and with truth, and I'll call you somewhere more. I love this. Jesus doesn't look at her and say, hey, those guys are so old-fashioned. They don't know what they're talking about. He says, no, come on. Come on. There's more for you than this. 
And the most loving thing Jesus could do was to see her sin and then to see her life beyond that sin and to say, I love you enough to show you both sides. And it's what I was trying to do that night when I was sitting with my friend when he was at rock bottom and I just blew it. But I thought, Lord, give me another chance. Come on, Lord, give us, give us another chance. Can you imagine what would happen in a moment like this if our church would raise up and be people of grace and truth? Remember last year, Sydney and I, when we were in Australia um, uh, ministering for a few weeks, uh, for whatever reason, the Lord kept taking me back to the book of Ezekiel. And I hadn't studied it in some time, so I'm reading through this Old Testament book called Ezekiel. And over and over and over, I was just challenged with the way that God kept coming to the religious people. And he kept dealing with their inability to confront sin with both grace and truth. It's all throughout the book of Ezekiel. He shows up to them and says, hey, hey, listen. He says, when you are confronted with the people that you love and they're not walking in the ways of God, he says, for you to ignore their sin or for you to affirm their sin is not helpful. And he goes on and on and on. And there's this moment in Ezekiel 22 that just struck me. I remember where I was. I was sitting on the floor at four in the morning in Australia reading through Ezekiel. And I get to Ezekiel 22. And there's this moment where the Lord says, I've searched the land looking for someone that would love me enough and love the culture enough to stand in the gap with grace and truth. But I found nobody. And I went, Lord, may that not be said of us. May that not be said of you. May that not be said of me. May that not not be said of our church. May the Lord look at us and say, when someone's life falls apart, I know the people for the job because they'll come with grace and they'll come with truth and, and that both of those are a picture of Jesus himself, the fullness of grace and truth. See, I love this. Jesus could live in grace and truth because he wasn't fearful of what everybody thought about him. He knew that if he was too gracious, the religious people would think he's a heretic and a friend of sinners. And if he was too truthful, the culture would think he was a closed-minded bigot. But Jesus said, here's the deal. I'm gonna fear God and fear God alone. And when I walk according to his word and his purposes, it will bless everybody around me. And I go, until we as a people have the ability to let go of our desire to be constantly liked and approved of by everyone, we'll be useful to nobody. Until we can say, hey, we are loved and accepted by God, only then in that place do we have the ability to walk in grace and truth. Because if you're only gracious, who's gonna come down on you? The religious people. And when you walk in truth, who's gonna come down on you? The culture. And so here's the good news. When you and I learn to walk in the ways of Jesus, you are always offending somebody. How does that feel? But it's just the truth. And as we learn to walk with the Lord, we just begin to say, okay, God, make sure we're not offending to, offending to you. And when we walk in this way, we become a blessing to other people. So I wanna just give you a couple of handles before we, we, we take communion together. How do we grow in this place of grace, grace and truth? Because you leave here and it's not you sitting in your car going, make me more gracious, make me more truthful. I mean, maybe that works, you can try that. But I, I, I wanna give you something a little more practical than that, just kind of three things to hold on to. The first is this that if you wanna walk in grace and truth, you have to be a person who is consistently immersed in the word of God. You have to be immersed in the word of God, reading it, memorizing it, studying it, thinking about it, why? Because every day you are receiving a multitude of messages that are trying to push you either towards grace or towards truth and sometimes towards neither. 
But it's only when you're immersed in the word of God that you begin to have a right view of who God is and a right view of the people around you and a right view of sin and a right view of grace. It's only in the word of God. And here's the deal. If you are, please hear me on this, those of you that grew up in church. If you are still living on the fumes of your family, your parents' knowledge about God, that will not serve you well in the cultural moment we're in. That you can't survive off of somebody else's diligence in the word of God. That just like your mom eating a bowl of soup wherever she is today isn't gonna put food in your belly. Your parents walking faithfully with the Lord, getting into scriptures, isn't going to anchor your life in grace and truth. Bless you. In grace and truth, be blessed. So you have to be immersed in the word. Second thing, you have to be immersed in a spirit-filled community. I'm not just talking about people that go to church and call themselves Christians, because that is total crap in our culture. People check Christian like they check their race when they're filling out a, a job application. I'm talking about to be in a community, in a house church, in a small group, in a family, in a friend, a friend group, to be in a group of people that say, we want to embody the grace, the kindness of God, and the truth of his word. And we want to live those things out together. And it happens in community because in community, you have the ability to discern things that you don't discern on your own. You have the ability to soften each other's kind of difficult edges or to give each other courage where you need courage. You need to be immersed in the word. You need to be immersed in community. And lastly, you need to be immersed in the world. Because until you find yourself standing face to face with the woman like John 8, all of this is theoretical mumbo jumbo. But when you find yourself with a real person at real rock bottom, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, anchored in his word with your community in your back, man, God can use you. See, here's what I believe. I believe that this week, this month, this year, that the Lord is gonna bring us face to face with people that have come to the end. And the question is, will we be a family with grace and truth so that we can see the sin and see beyond it so they can experience the goodness of what it is that God has? Let's stand. I wanna pray over us as we get ready to take communion together. God, I love you, and I love this group of people. Thank you, God, that we get to do life together. Father, for some of us this morning, we need a fresh injection of grace. We are the truth people, but we don't know how to be the grace people. And some of us, Lord, this morning, we need a fresh injection of truth. We are the grace people, but we don't know how to say the difficult things. God, we want to be more like you. That's our goal. That's our goal. That's the, the hunger of our hearts, the longing of our hearts. God, would you help us to be the type of people that our very presence becomes great news to those that find themselves in situations that are not great. God, would you help us to know what to say and how to say it and what to do. But Lord, would all of that be an overflow of what happens in our time in your word and our time in your community and our time walking with you in the world. God, would you give us opportunities this week to find ourselves face to face with people in their lowest moments. And God, would you help us to respond the way that you do, Jesus. God, don't let us get drugged down in just the nonsense of our culture where we're just spouting things back and forth or we're engaging from a distance. God, bring us into close proximity and would you do what only you can do? And God, would you use it to bring people home? God, for the people in this room who are feeling confronted by your grace and truth this morning, Lord, would you call them? Would you call them to yourself? You know how to do that, Lord. Lord, I pray that you do that as we speak. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.